Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But tonight we are here to celebrate Cheston Knapp and his new collection of essays, Up, Up, Down, Down. Cheston Knapp is the managing editor of Tin House Magazine and the executive director of the Tin House Summer Workshop. Up, Up, Down, Down, his first book, is his first book and it's already receiving phenomenal praise. Anthony Dower described Knapp's writing as always smart, often hilarious, and ultimately transcendent. And Maggie Nelson described Knapp as having the eye and ear of an anthropologist, a joyously expansive vocabulary, a prose style that feels both extravagant and exact, and a big, booming heart. We're delighted to have him here today to read and discuss Up, Up, Down, Down. Please help me welcome Cheston Knapp. Right. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, Tom Bissell was supposed to be here. He could not be here tonight because he and his child got the flu. We're all deeply saddened by that, but I hear they're making a swift recovery. Um, I'm going to read from this essay uh, about uh, skateboarding and nostalgia. Um, I, at about 31 years old, started having these really, you know, sort of pointed, pointed uh, fits of nostalgia that I, uh, about circ circling around skateboarding. And so I found out that there was this adult skateboarding camp that took place in Portland, right outside of my house in Portland, Oregon, um, and when. I ended up being the only adult skateboard at adult skateboard camp um, after the only other skateboarder, her name was Maureen, uh, broke her ankle the first night on the trampolines. And so I was in a house with um, about seven other uh, snowboarder and skier types, just like if you can imagine... MTV spring break programs, you have a sense of like the people who were also in this adult house. Um, on the, it, it, the days entailed me going to skateboard parks with a bunch of teenagers, so it was very disorienting. I thought I was getting myself into a different experience than I was. Uh, on, the, on Thursday of that week, um, it rained, and we ended up having to decide what to do with our time. We ended up uh, voting on what to do, and votes for the indoor water park about an hour away came out six to one. I'll let it to your imagination who, uh, or the proceeding, who was the one dissenting voice. Uh, so I'll just start from there. I think that's everything you need to know. Deeper into primo Oregon wine country and rains off in the distance in every direction. But here the sun is out and seems bound to the earth by diaphanous ribbons of light fragile as haikus. We pass estimable travel brochure views of the vineyards, rows and rows of vines laid out like a maze for the mentally infirm. Around a bend and we spot the water park. You can't miss it. Evergreen Wings and Waves shares a plot with the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum, whose collection includes, most famously, the Spruce Goose, Howard Hughes' mammoth wooden airplane. Does this not typify America, I wonder, as we pull up? 
this, this nostalgia for the colossal failures of our hyper-rich, this memorializing of pure ambition. The water park itself has been made to fit the museum's aeronautical theme. Perched on the roof and incorporated into the structure of the building is a 747. Not a replica or model, but an actual plane. A plane that once actually flew. The cabin has been gutted and retrofitted with four tubular and tentacular slides. Sonic boom, tailspin, nosedive, and Mach 1. This I know from the website I looked up on my phone when curiosity overcame me and I wanted a better sense of what I'd gotten myself into. We park and the guys finish, of what's, finish what's left of their second or third locos. Do you guys remember that drink for... Okay. <laughs> and we collect our gear. Uh, before we get to the entrance, we seem to pass through a permeable membrane of chlorine, an ammoniac field that only intensifies inside and that recalls the summer days I spent at our little neighborhood pool as a kid. The air is heavy, humid, it makes you aware of the fact that you're breathing and so induces a low-level claustrophobia in those thus disposed. And the noise. Imagine the noise Twitter would make if indeed Twitter could make actual noise. Imagine a cartoon devil's collection of souls. It's a literal pandemonium in here. Over the top 40 tunes piped through the place by speakers I cannot see, shrill peals of delight and terror echo endlessly. You can't tell where they're coming from, fore or aft. Meanwhile, the wave pool issues a salvo of beachy sound effects. A giant bucket perched atop a forest-themed jungle gym that's reminiscent of the Swiss family Robinson tips, and 300 gallons of water hit the ground with concussive force. Two teenage guys stand below it and brace, brace against the impact. The blue and yellow and green and orange sides slides spiral like silly straws out from the belly of the 747. Even this simple and stationary recon of the park, laid out like a giant Rube Goldberg device, sets the kettle drum of dread beating inside me. Admission is $32, and I realize I've stupidly forgotten a towel. So for another $24, I pick up a commemorative one that portrays a spacewalking astronaut. We change and grab inner tubes and head for the stairs that lead to the slides. A quick scan of the demographic reveals that we are easily the oldest people here without children of our own. And in this, we seem to charge the water park with an electric and mildly dangerous current. Families have come from afar to frolic unselfconsciously in various stages of undress, in various states of undress, and our very presence here seems to have corrupted this simplicity, to have turned the mood interrogative. When we reach the upper level, we find colored lines on the floor that correspond with the different colored slides, a system I know from trips to the emergency room to treat skateboarding-related injuries. James compels me to do the nosedive with him in a tandem inner tube, so we follow the green line. When it's our turn, we hold the grab bars at our sides in the little eddying pool in front of the tube's opening and wait for the signal that the father-son dyad who plunged before us have cleared the pool below. The bidet-like jet under the water behind me burbles upon my undercarriage in a way that is decidedly not unpleasant. 
Maybe this is what it means to grow, making myself available to experiences like this. Maybe I'm at the mouth of no mere slide, but a portal, a Super Mario-like warp to another world, one in which my fun force field has been disassembled, and I'm able to cut loose like the good old days, the days of backyard backyard birthday parties marshaled by Dad. This is healthy, I think, necessary. I will consent to being swallowed by this monstrous plastic nematode in order to emerge out the other side a new man. And though we know it to be verboten, James pulls a rogue GoPro out of his bathing suit's pocket. It is apparently his intention to film our descent. What percentage of the truth does video footage really tell? Does James's tiny waterproof camera capture the anxiety I feel as we release the grab bars and are propelled gently tubeward? Or only the smile I force for the camera's sake? Does the darkness that follows convey any of the speed and the jouncing we experience as we plummet down drops and bank around turns we cannot see? Any of the inner ear disquietude I feel when we then debouch into an open-topped funnel structure halfway through? Or my tachycardia as we circle as though caught in a whirlpool, the jets spinning us around in such a way that by the time we enter the maw at the center's funnel, we do so backward? Can you place the moment when the timbre of my screams shifts from simulated fear to the actual thing? After what qualifies as an eternity, the tube expels us and we hit the sarcophagal pool of water. Relief and vertigo overwhelm me in equal measure. James hurries out of the pool and grabs our inner tube and makes for the stairs. He must sense my absence and turns to find me well behind him. Go on ahead, I say. I'm going to scope out the wave pool. Barring extreme circumstance, like if I have to evade a predator or something, I have just ridden my last water slide. He seems disappointed, and whatever thrill of acceptance and camaraderie I feel at that is overshadowed by my disappointment in myself. Why can't I seem to get out of my own way? I and me are always too deep in conversation. Will it take having a child of my own for me to, ha- to be able to enjoy myself at a place like this again? To pay $56 and receive something more in return than a commemorative towel and a panic attack? I walk over and stand on the granulated concrete of Splashdown Harbor. The waves don't break on the shore so much as just sort of surge mellowly forward as they do at small lakes. At the back of the pool, where in real life the ocean would meet the sky to form the horizon, there's a humongous television screen. It's broadcasting trivia questions about water. Surrounding the screen is a mural of U.S. spacecraft hitting the ocean and a ship on its mission to retrieve it. The stairs on either side of the pool are encased in silos painted to resemble NASA rockets. On the wall above and to the right of the screen are the Ten Commandments. Among many other Bible verses, I once memorized these in Sunday school, but when I try to run through them now, I can recall only six. A big brothery voice comes over the loudspeaker, interrupting the top 40 playlist, and reminds parents to increase the frequency with which they take their kids to the bathroom. And for a moment, I can almost see them, the Uranus nebula swirling about the midsections of the under sevens. 
how many times in history has a man stood on a beach and dug his feet into the sand and gazed out at the horizon and been awed by the immensity of the ocean and the sky, been humbled by thoughts of the starry heavens beyond, been frightened and appraised himself as small? Why is my knowledge limited? Why my stature? By whose order and direction have this place and time been allotted me? And now, wait, I skipped a page. And now, how many times has a man stood on granulated concrete meant to simulate sand and let lake-like swash lick his ankles as he looked out over manufactured waves and a tremendous trivia game and over pop tunes thought likewise? Everything about this place seems to encourage thinking about big words, history, morality, humanity, science. Humanity is especially difficult to avoid. I'm unfamiliar with the social codes that govern water parks, but I'm trying to use my best judgment when it comes to people watching. I'm trying my best not to stare. But there are so many bodies here, so much skin on parade. Anywhere my eyes land, there it is. Spectrally thin adolescents with ribs like monkey bars. Obese children of the sort medieval ogres would eat, with chubby bunny cheeks and tummies that already look like botched souffles. Adolescent girls whose bathing suits are real close to being inappropriately loose. A man-titted grandpa wearing a Speedo is splayed out in an inner tube in the center of the pool, a buoy of self-esteem, calling out the answers to the trivia questions that play over the screen. There are a plethora of faded and bad tattoos. In startling short order, I spot three depicting Taz. Stretch marks on men and women both that look like shark attack scars. Women in two pieces when one would probably be more flattering. And as a straight man with feminist sympathies, I don't know what my proper response to this should be. Should I be proud of these women for fighting the good fight against the impossible body standards our media propounds? Or is it sad that they're having to fight that fight with the media's same weapons of revelation and display? That modesty isn't an option. And then I think I'm probably already some class of asshole for wondering this in the first place, like they need my sympathy. I know what's called for here is an absence of judgment, but as a male animal, there are some things that no matter how hard I try, I cannot shut all the way down. A ropey-muscled teenager walks past me and enters the pool, and his back is so full of acne that it looks like a shotgun wound. And now, I also feel like an asshole for gawking at it, and then doubly an asshole for feeling pity for him, and then trebly an asshole for wondering whether it's sanitary for him to be swimming in Splashdown Harbor in the first place. And now, I just kind of want to cry. Because what are bodies but fucked up vessels of time? The testimony of a being's passage through life, and so the record and messenger of private joys and loves, nostalgias and pains, that we on the fake concrete sand at the wave pool's edge cannot even begin to guess at. I haul my own hideous skin into the undulating pool, add my hateful body to the teeming crowd. I make my way into the breakers, where the chop is at its mild heaviest. The density and distribution of bodies force me to wade by a group of 16 or 17 year old girls who are jumping over the waves. They're all wearing bikinis and have their hair in sloppy and coquettish updos. 
As I pass, I smile a smile that's meant to be totally avuncular and disarming and unthreatening. But at that moment, a wave catches one of the girls off guard and knocks her back, and we seem to see it at the same time, that her bathing suit top has been set askew and her young left breast sits exposed. An involuntary and maybe autistic part of me immediately gauges the breast's firmness and heft and cross-references the diameter and hue of the areola and indexes the ambitious nubbin of its nipple, categorizes it as nice, and files it away in the basement of my id. The girl has seen me smiling, and a look of embarrassment and horror comes over her face as she frantically tries to return the breast to its papoose, but the nipple boings out the other side. My mirror neurons start firing on overdrive as I watch this, for, of course, I realize the breast is really her breast. Not part of a body, but her body. The bearer of a unique matrix of time and circumstance that is a soul. And I'm filled with a tender sympathy for her caught in this dilemma and feel guilty for taking even a scintilla of pleasure in something that has caused her distress and psychic pain. And yet I know that the damage has been done, and whatever I do now doesn't matter. I cannot be of comfort because surely any move toward her would be interpreted as one of pervy weirdness and possibly aggression. So I turn, embarrassed now myself, and hurry away, managing that task with the run paddle that is perhaps the least artful form of water aerobics. In the middle of the pool, the water is warm, amniotic, and I lie on my back and for a while I rise and fall with the gentle swell of the waves. I shake off the disturbance of moments ago and my suspicions of subaqueous nebulae of urine. My thoughts then seem to catch the rhythm of the pool and there's something hypnotic about it all. This is nice, I think. It's soothing, feels safe. Floating in the gently rolling water like this, I experience a moment of deep respect for human ingenuity and seem to be approaching an almost Buddhist zone of plenary emptiness. Then the whistles are blown. The sound effects abruptly cease. The waves calm and flatten as though rebuked. I stand in the chest-high water, and there is much confusion in the pool as the lifeguards leap to action. It is then that I see what looks to be a Mexican man floating face down near the center of the pool. Did I not but moments ago see him disporting gleefully? When the two lifeguards reach him, they flip him over and slide their safety orange, yellow foam tube, safety orange foam tubes in place and begin the process of ferrying him to shore. They follow a protocol I'm familiar with from all the episodes of Baywatch I watched as an adolescent. A solemn and reverential mood overtakes Splashdown Harbor. Molecular clusters of children in inner tubes go quiet. Whispers and hushed concerns circulate among the adults. I ask, but no one around me knows what's going on. Everyone's as clueless as I am. What could have possibly happened here? What manner of tragedy are we witnessing? If the lifeguards are not able to save him, what story will his kids tell? And what of his poor wife? Is death experienced as somehow more real and more unjust if it happens under this Disney-fied dome? In a theme park whose many architectural features have been engineered to provoke a fear similar to that of death, whose tubes could be said to mimic the experience of death, transporting one as they do through darkness to a different plane of existence? 
Other guards are waiting near the beach, holding a buoyant stretcher in place. When they maneuver the man onto it and secure his neck, they carry him out of the pool and begin tending to him on the granulated concrete. I then notice people around me pointing to either side of the pool and shaking their heads, their faces filled with disbelief. And there I see them too, the small signs above the lifeguard stands. They inform us that a drill is underway, that the drama has been staged. Fuck this. I wade out of the pool. I'm careful to avoid the huddle of teenage girls and pass the man strapped into the stretcher on the ground, and any pity I felt for him moments ago has turned to disdain, even rage. Some delicate balance has been upset here, I feel. Some social contract violated. What should remain implicit in a park like this, that is the fear of death, has been made explicit, and I could almost scream at all these budding Hasselhoffs, spit and fart on them both. Could they not have made it more obvious that this was all pretend, make-believe? Or did they want to do their best to simulate a, the variable of a crowded wave pool? Were we all just unwittingly duped into working for the theme park? And if so, should we not then be compensated somehow? Maybe with commemorative towels, for example? While the other guys continue to tube, I spend much of the rest of my time at Evergreen Wings and Waves sitting in the hot tub, luxuriating in an experience the adult house had promised but failed to deliver. Time to time they join me though, modern Marco Polos, bearing fantastic tales of their travels on the slides, reveling in the wondrous sights they've seen. Chick in the white bikini, Sparrow says, and stands to look for her. His back has a wheel across it from the joints in the Mach 1 slide, which you ride tubeless. Major camel toe. And this one woman in green, Ben says, her bush is just hanging out the bottom of her bathing suit. Needs to take a weed whacker to that shit. It was gross, Zach confirms. Is it enough that I resist the temptation to bro out over the boob I've seen? Does this little bit of self-denial count as a form of atonement for the pleasure I took from something that caused the girl grief? I choose instead to tell them about the staged death of the Mexican man, but I must fail to convey the weight and strangeness of it because when I finish, they just laugh and laugh. And after a while, my skin is pruned up so much it aches. It's like even my body is trying to retreat inside itself. Thank you. Stop there. <laughs> I can take any questions. Sparrow was a very interesting character. Um, he was from Hawaii, and uh, he provided unending like material for me. He had. Do you guys know the Volcom Diamond? Like that. Like he had two of them tattooed. Like on uh, the Volcom Diamond is like a. That, that it's a brand, the Volcom, but it's like a, it's just like this diamond, and he had them tattooed like under the little jockey's ridges of his obliques. You know, he had a tattoo along. Uh, it's just a brand. It's like a surfing brand, and so like he. It, yeah, it's a logo. It's like it's like if you got the Nike, you know, logo on your chest, you know, or something. He's branded twice, you know, twice branded by Volcom. Uh, he had a. Um, tattoo along his ribs that was uh, that said Nesta in very like uh, old English script, and I was like Nesta, what is that? And I refined for relevance. It was Bob Marley's first name. Um, it meant messenger, 
so he had this, he made this like, yeah, this guy, Sparrow. Yeah, 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 and talking. So I got it. Yeah, by the time you reach this section, you have a good idea of who Sparrow is as a, as a guy. Yeah, I have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 31. I was having these really crazy dreams where I was dreaming of spots that I had skated, in, skated at in Richmond, and it felt like... Um, almost like an exorcism, like I needed to go back and do these certain tricks in order to put them to bed, ultimately. Um, and there was no way I was going to do that on my own. Do you know what I mean? Like there was no way I was just going to like, n with no prompting or whatever, uh, try to do those things. So I, I decided to try to go to this camp. I didn't at first, no, I was going to write about it. I took a notebook along with me and figured, you know, if something happens, maybe I'll do something. And then, like, many things happened, you know, like that, that I ended up being the only adult there. Several people ended up falling out along the way so that it was like this tontine, you know, like people kept, like, falling out. I'm like, what have I signed myself up for, you know? Yeah, in the beginning I was determined to finish, and then by the, by the end it was just clear that I was not fit f to finish. So the, the water park day was my last full day. Um, I ended up leaving <laughs> two days early. Uh, I also, like, the, the, the piece is framed a little bit by, like, me trying to get back this one trick that I, I really liked. This is called the 360 kickflip, and, like, I got that and got footage of me doing it, and so it was, like, almost like it, you know... My, my point of being there was done. My purpose of being there was done. I didn't need to play beer pong with those guys or, you know, um, go to disorientation, which was like the ending. And I'd, I'd, had, a, I'd had enough disorientation, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, yeah. So, a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a lot of knowledge on top of capitalism. And especially registering with other women as Yeah. And I got a feeling that the serial vision of women's bodies, which I think is an expression in our culture of um, capitalist market. Yeah. And the guy. Me. <laughs> the eye. Yet, <laughs> there's a new type of mill, and it sparked an article that I just read about how the stage of boyhood in America is a beautiful place and it was all in the masculinity of the somewhat brutal, but yet expressive and um, fully
Uh, that's interesting. I, I mean, that's a, so for the podcasters, <laughs> if I were to try to summarize that, I don't know if I would be able to. I, I, but my sense is that we have brutal and reduced versions of both male and female gender. Well, I think just in the notion that we think of, you know, male gender as brutal and, and testosteronic and all this and have no uh, space for self-questioning or um, insecurity or uh, fragility that's wrapped into what I see is just the experience of being a person, you know, um, expressed across gender lines. Um, the stuff you said about femininity or like female gender ad- identifying people, I, I totally think is true, which is that it has been reduced to a sexualized capitalistic greed or ownership or um, we're starting to see people write against that and have for, you know, a long time, at least 50 years or more, uh, but both the point is is that like things are a lot more complex than than you know the the notion of the market gives them credit for right like so that you know the, the idea of a beer swigging football guy is just as reductive as like a sexy babe um does that make sense that like that that like both all all the idea of gender is is, is very complicated and, and that each side has things to sort of write up against or rub up against rub up against yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, the platform. Um, I'm not concerned about the feminist model we've been talking about that Oh uh, yeah, my book's not about that. Uh, like, I don't, I don't feel like in a. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I hope it does, and I hope it shows that like it's okay to allow a fragility that the pathology of these shooters is the fact that they're not shown an outlet for sensitivity or for hurt. You know, that, that, that anger is the only channel that they're encouraged by our culture to funnel that into. And so if, if my book can do anything, if I can do anything, it's just to say, like, look, there are other ways to, to, to take your hurt. Or, 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 yeah. Yeah, hold on. Let's, yeah, Jamin. write a thing yeah yeah I I had a I really wanted to write fiction when I was like you know in my 20s and everything and then I had to read a tremendous amount of fiction um, and my ambitions for it I think in response to having to read so much like some very good some you know less than impressive fiction was that it just shut down for me. And so there was a time in my late 20s and early 30s where I felt like I didn't know what I wanted to, to write. And um, so I, I think that, that the role of the editor editing has been to, to show me what, what paths are not mine, you know. And I sort of lucked into being able to, like, have a space to write a couple essays where I could just rip, you know, like, I could just kind of try to incorporate some of the things that you were talking, we were talking about earlier, where this vulnerability felt like something to be, um, any, I don't know, 
uh, utilized in a way. It's both, right? Like it's, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm of a belief that irony is not an enemy to sincerity. Um, that like that one can model a kind of being and also comment on that being at the same time, which is the definition of irony. It's the distance between living it and commenting on it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think both provides like a richer critique or context for anything that then follows, if that makes sense. I love Charlie. Uh, you know, uh, irony is the new chastity. You know, he's talking, He's uh, that's probably from burning down the house from like 1994 or something, so... Yeah, okay, well, that comes from a place, Charlie's worldview and his, his idea of stories come from a place that, are, that is generated against a, a kind of... Um, what, what is it, like infectious irony, or like, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, irony goes back, I mean, so this goes back to, you know, uh, all, the, all the way to the beginning of literature. So um, the idea that it's the new chastity, I, it, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a quaint idea. I don't think it um, is philosophically solvent as like a, you know, like a path, um, personally. I, I think that, like, it's easy, again, to draw these demarcations that, like with gender, irony versus sincerity, you know, you know like where it's... Well, it's just not true. I, I just, yeah. I, I think that things are a lot more like complex all around and that literature is the place where um, complexity is, a, is in all of its ugly, beautiful, you know, manner can, can be explored, you know? Like, it, this isn't politics. Like, I'm not trying to write a political book. I'm, I'm trying to show a way of being and uh, that involves, you know, allowing yourself to live in questions that might be uncomfortable or that might touch on sort of hot, you know, third rail-y type things in the culture, but those things infect you as you sort of just live. So, yeah, Robert. Can I ask you, I mean, being an editor, knowing you probably had more than you actually put out, and looking at the kind of thought, are there one or two stories or one or two reflective moments that I sort of cast my lot with Annie Dillard, who was like, "Give it all every day." You know, like there's some quote that I'm mangling, but it's like, you know, you give it all you can. Um, there was stuff I had to cut out because it was just too long. Stuff pacing-wise didn't work, but. I don't think there's a director's cut of this book that uh, is better, you know. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure that, I think the experience of writing this book has opened up, you know, avenues for whatever it is I'll do next, but mostly it's a strategic thing, like how 
how a voice can work in certain situations and give. Like, I really am interested in those moments where uh, the mashup of expectation and um, where your expectations as a reader are thwarted by insights that can play against type, basically. <laughs> it's a Hollywood term for <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it felt like a water park in and of itself. You could almost do a chapter on every sort of side. Or even the point of view of that. That's interesting. A nine-year-old view of the water park. Yeah. So that's a thing that I worked really hard on for this book, which is to... Um, I would really love it to feel like there was stuff that's not being said, that there are, there is this overarching stuff that is suggested um, and uh, alluded to or sort of invited by the essays. Um, I think essays are at their least interesting when they just marshal out personal experience as a, you know, op-eddy way where it's like this experience proves this. You know, what's interesting to me is that, um, it, most interesting to me is the personal essayists who use their personal experience to then like invite a reader to think alongside them. And that involves a lot of cutting away of your own thinking and being able to think in a way that invites people to think alongside you and like you're holding hands with the reader rather than like talking to the reader. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's what you would hope. I, I, I would hope. So, thanks. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're linked. Yeah, yeah. Good question. Yeah, they are linked essays. They were not all written explicitly for the book. Um, I had written three and a half before I knew I had a book, and then I realized to my dismay uh, that I was writing a linked collection of essays. And so all of my hopes and dreams of hitting the bestseller list just went out the door. Um, but after I... Yeah, because, you know, this is a joke. It's hard to market a linked collection of essays. But uh, the, the idea for me was that it, it felt like this place where I could do something what, that I thought was really intriguing, which was to tell this sort of coming-of-age story over seven essays. And so I had three of them. I had to go back and excavate the three and a half that I had and um, lay in sort of themes and stuff. It's not unlike editing a... Uh, uh, you know, an album, I would imagine, is that by the end I was just playing at the mixing board to make sure that things that were alluded to in the first essay are then picked up and complicated and um, developed further in ones that come after. But I wrote the last two pretty much explicitly for the book and one other one in the middle about influence that uh, I was like, okay, I see how this is all going to go. Um, that was the real fun of it for me, is making those like global decisions. And that's why the, the last two are, are so much longer. I do feel like I was moving toward a more, like, you know, I wanted more space. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. They, um, 
all over the place. They weren't chronological at all. Uh, the earliest one is third, you know, the, you know like it's, um, it's sort of all over the place. But that was the real fun of it, you know, is saying, what's the, how is this a book, you know? I was complaining to, a, to my friend earlier that like so many collections of essays are just, essays as a form are often considered like the thing that otherwise serious artists do when they're not doing their serious art, you know? So like a poet or a novelist will write an essay because some hoity-toity magazine in New York commissioned them to write an essay. And so when a collection of essays comes out, it just becomes this like diffuse miscellany of their thinky dinkaroos, you know, on whatever subject. And so I wanted this to feel like a book because I believe in the notion that political, or that personal experience can be a bridge between people, that there, there can be this place where, uh, for lack of a better and less played out word, empathy can be transacted, um, that, that the essay can do that. Yeah. No, I actually feel like the, the, the form is really interesting to me because it, it was broken 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's always been a very open form, but like we as a culture have just been able, like discussing it as an interesting, exciting form in the past 20 or so years, it feels like, um, since that Philip Lopate art of the essay big thing came out. I feel like it was 83, eight, whatever it was. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that it hasn't yet codified into some expectation yet. So people are still like Maggie and you know Sarah Manguso and uh, Leslie Jameson and all these really exciting writers are are showing us over and over again like it can be any form. So just like with a short story, you have a little bit more of an expectation, whereas like an essay, you're like you can you can determine you can still define the rules. Or, uh, that of your own essay in a way that I don't, it's hard in a short story to do that for me. Um, but I still like telling stories, you know? I still believe storytelling as a... It, it, I mean, that's the primary mode of these essays. They're not inquisitive in an academic sense. They it's a sort of pull from reading of philosophers that I've done, but not in any specialized way. Uh, yeah, at all. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, the pressing cues, yeah. Mr. Boyd. So, um, taking an essay from the first draft is publication. Um, but I wonder, what is it like to, to see your, your thoughts in finished form versus who you become in that first draft? Have you experienced to see yourself crystallized like that? Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying because there's tons of stuff in here that, you know, these books were written, for instance, or these essays were written before I was a dad. And so I feel like there's a certain kind of restlessness in them that I no longer feel. You know, there's a um, fatherhood has softened me in a way that that isn't represented in these essays fully. And so um, there's something kind of strange and like uh, already a pastness to it, uh, to, to them. I, I mean, I still obviously believe in them and don't, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that the book is about is like how how it is that we these bodies we're walking in walking in around walking around in contain all the different identities that we 
have been, right? So like frat boy, lax bro, Christian, skater, you know, poet, maybe briefly, lover, even more briefly. Uh, yeah, like, the, so, I mean, just all the, like, this is what I mean is like, um, the culture is just now catching up to all the political stuff we see. It's just catching up to the complexity that identity just in general is for everyone. <laughs> Right. Um, so anytime you try to box things out, and that's what politics does, is reduce. Uh, y you end up with problems, you know. Whereas literature can be the place where complexity is allowed to flourish. Um, but yeah, I feel, I, I feel like it's a different person now, and whatever I do next will be, hopefully, even more mature and better. <laughs> but it might go backwards. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Sure. So my assumption is, is that the essay formally is a lot like poetry in that there is a paradox of suggestion of how people can bring their own work to the manuscript, not just the writer, give it Yeah, th that's exactly right. Yeah. So what I'm wondering, the two things I see when I should see them all the same piece um, there's the comic book, which has a lot of weight, and then there's a part of course that's open. So we seem to be using all different stuff. We see something further in the way that we are going to see the story that, uh, that, that the essay is formal. Or do I have it wrong? No, I, I don't. I don't think you have it wrong. I, I think any time, like I've been saying about other things, like any time you're like, start reducing things for understanding, um, you're getting into trouble, from, in my estimation. So comic versus poetic starts to feel really, like, hair shirty for me. You know, like, um, I don't, I, I vibrate against any kind of dichotomy that tries to explain things just as a general rule. Um, I think there's this writer, Guy Davenport, he was a Kentucky writer, he like a po like sort of modernist inflected guy and he wrote a lot of very weird short stories but uh, some really good essays and he has this one I like the title better than I like the essay itself, it's called Every, Every Force Evolves a Form and um, that more or less is the is is it for me that as far as writerly wisdom goes, I feel like that's about as much as I'm able to offer that uh, that you have a thing that is irresolvable, right? You have an, a, something that's happened to you or a character or how, whatever mode you're working in. You have some irreducible thing that keeps nagging at you, and in some way, paying attention to the language that you've thrown at that problem or the language that keeps compounding when you try to think about it, that is helping to determine whatever form it is, you know? And so I also itch against, you know, sonnets because, like, that thing is not allowed... You're writing for a sonnet rather than writing whatever the thing that the sonnet's expressing. For me, the essay's interesting because it... Um, one is able to just pay attention to the shit that you started writing for, you know? 
No, of course they have. They're the best. You know, I would say that they're the most famous and rightfully so. You know, we're reading the best sonnets. <laughs> like, they're, they're like, there are not a lot of sonnets out there that are like, oh, you've got, have you, have you seen this one? <laughs> like, um, but it, again, this is just my, I like stuff that feels a little feral and a little bit um, broken. I think there's an, uh, American and maybe continental-ish inflected thing where uh, the book doesn't have to be rigidly structured in a way it can just allow itself to find its way. Thank you. All right, let's call it there. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Vanessa. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.